and gentlemen, welcome to Exhibition History, the place to be for the greatest stories the world has ever known. Join us for each sword episode where we cover the greatest adventures and voyages of the past. Exhibition History, Episode 1, The Tale of the Ten Thousand. The story I'm about to tell you is, in my horribly amateurish opinion, certainly one of the greatest adventure stories of all time, especially if you have a passion for classical antiquity an era popularly defined by the exploits of Greco-Roman civilizations. Is this an ambitious task for first episode? Almost certainly, and I can only hope that I give it the justice it deserves, but we've got to start somewhere, so here we go. The Tale of the Ten Thousand is handed down to us in the Anabasis, a historical text penned by the soldier, philosopher, and all-around badass Xenophon of Athens, who was perhaps the best man to write of the ordeal, considering that he himself held a prominent role within the Ten Thousand's ranks. I cannot recommend this book enough and strongly encourage you to pick it up if you possess any interest in history or just love a good story. But anyways, on with the show. But first, one more little quick note. In an effort to prevent any confusion throughout the episode, I want to make it known now that I'll be referring to the 10,000 as the 10,000, of course, but also as the Greeks or the Hellenes or occasionally just as the Hoplites, even though that there were more than just Hoplites in the ranks. But I don't want to just bombard you guys by over and over with the words the 10,000 just over and over again. Thank you for your understanding. Now, we may begin our scheduled programming. To give some background and set the stage, we must first look at the Eastern Mediterranean world in 401 BC, when the Greek Golden Age was in full swing. Greek culture and ideals spread like wildfire, and having survived the divisive Peloponnesian War only a generation before, the individual city-states of Greece now at peace, were flourishing. However, the same could not be said about the Greeks' age-old rival, the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Having launched two costly invasions of Greece at the start of the century and left with nothing to show for them, the Persian Empire began to enter a period of long decline. For quite some time, the empire had long chafed under oppressive taxes, ethnic unrest, and the increasing autonomy of local satraps, essentially provincial governors, who often operated as warlords and power brokers exploiting the weak central government to wage war on each other in a continual struggle for riches and influence. In 401 BC, one of these internal power struggles, fueled by royal brothers, would erupt into a civil war. In the city of Sardis, on the southeast coast of Anatolia, the Persian prince Cyrus the Younger, satrap of Lydia, Phrygia, and Cappadocia, most of modern Turkey for those who are not too familiar with ancient Turkish geography, had long viewed the Persian throne with disgust. Atop it sat his elder brother, Artaxerxes II, whose secession in the wake of their father's death was challenged by Cyrus almost immediately. Cyrus demanded the throne for himself, and with his negotiations leading nowhere, he prepared for war. Knowing that any buildup of arms would immediately be noticed and reported to his brother, he gathered his army under the guise of mounting a campaign against the troublesome Scythians in the Taurus Mountains, a people always in revolt against Persian rule. In 401 BC, with his preparations complete, Cyrus and his army departed the city of Sardis, marching east. But despite Cyrus's best efforts, his ruse would not go undiscovered for long. The personal rival of Cyrus, a satrap by the name of Tissaphernes, recognized the force for what it really was and warned Artaxerxes II of his brother's open rebellion. Artaxerxes, now wise to the plot, assembled an army of his own, positioning himself within the interior of the empire, waiting for Cyrus to come to him. After marching eastwards for months, Cyrus's rebels and Artaxerxes' royal army met face to face in September 401 BC 
between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, approximately 60 kilometers north of Babylon on the plains of Canaxa. Though both sides were led by their respective Persian nobility, Cyrus and his followers on one side, Artaxerxes and his loyalists on the other, the overall composition of the two armies varied wildly. The army Artaxerxes brought to the field was fairly typical for Achaemenid armies at the time, roughly 40 to 50,000 men total, drawn from the vast number of tribes and people scattered throughout the seemingly endless realms found within the empire. Medians, Egyptians, Sogdians, Bactrians, Carians, Cappadocians, and countless others all arriving to the field in their native cultural dress, and each fighting in their unique cultural style. Formidable in their own right, this force was nevertheless centered around 6,000 elite Persian cavalrymen, known for their prowess on the field and regarded still today as some of the greatest horsemen the world has ever seen. Similarly, the army of Cyrus the Younger was also composed of large amounts of light infantry levied from his satraps in eastern Anatolia. Though the numbers are not well documented, some figures suggest his army was composed of only 20 to 30,000 men. But the backbone of his army, rather than Persian cavalry, was the presence of 10,000 Greek mercenary hoplites under the leadership of Clearchus of Sparta. It is these 10,000 soldiers from which the story bears its name. Despite mostly being remembered as citizen soldiers who fought in defense of their respective city-states, professional hoplite armies and generals could be found throughout the ancient Mediterranean world and were oft sought after by those in command who wished to gain an advantage over their adversaries. Often making up a far more heavily armored complement than any of their opposition, mercenary hoplites were well worth their weight in gold and more often than not backed their high price tag with extraordinary professional feats. The 10,000, however, were rather reluctant to have joined this particular campaign. Yes, they had all been willing to join up with Cyrus initially, but it was only well into the campaign east that they were told of their employer's true intent. Dismayed at the far greater threat that they now faced, it was only after great promises were made that the Greeks were convinced to carry on. But regardless of their feelings, their doubts and second thoughts served no place on the battlefield. They were now facing down an enemy army, and it was time to earn their coin. Cyrus's original plan for the Battle of Canoxa was to place his native levy infantry on his left and right flanks, anchoring his formation with the 10,000 hoplites in the center. Artaxerxes' formation was somewhat of a mirror of his brothers. He too placed his levies on the flanks, though instead of armored Greeks in the center of his line, he emplaced his own robust corps of Persian cavalry. Cyrus, convinced his army was perfectly arrayed to defeat the opposition, raided himself for battle. His arrangement, however, was countered by Clearchus, who strongly disagreed with his positioning, as he feared the placing of unreliable levies on the flanks may get the army encircled. Instead, he advised that the Greeks be placed on the right to better protect the flank of the army, and certainly not because the right flank was where the most esteemed of all Greek warriors fought as per their own cultural practices. That sarcasm, that was almost certainly a factor, but regardless, Cyrus agreed, and with the Greeks on the right and the levies making up the center and left, his army advanced, and the battle began. On Cyrus's right, the heavily armored Greeks made short work of their opposition. Charging forward, the stiff line of professional Greek bronze slammed into the weak Persian light infantry that made up Artaxerxes' left flank. The Persian left was scattered almost immediately in the face of such a solid attack and had crumbled so quickly that they were unable to fire even a single arrow against their foe. However, though the Greeks had triumphed in their respective sector, the rest of Cyrus' army would not enjoy such fortunes. Outnumbered and hard-pressed, the left flank was facing a losing battle, continually worn down by Artaxerxes' right, unable to get the better of them and steadily losing ground. In the center, Cyrus the Younger himself, backed by his own small cavalry contingent, boldly charged Artaxerxes with the aim of cutting off the head of the snake. 
Plunging into the center of his rival's army with his personal guard, Cyrus put it all on the line for a quick, dramatic shot at victory. Though still certainly dramatic, his move would prove futile as he was slain in the fighting, allegedly by Tissaphernes himself, a prominent general in the army of Artaxerxes. Though the battle at that point had become somewhat of a stalemate, the death of Cyrus brought it to an end. His demise was quickly communicated throughout the ranks, and the entire upstart army, now rebels without a cause, began to withdraw. The entire rebel army, that is, except for the 10,000. Victorious against Artaxerxes' left, Clearchus spun his force around and slammed directly into the far larger Persian right flank, throwing them back and forcing them to retreat to the high ground in the vicinity of Canaxa. Meanwhile, however, Cyrus's camp had been looted by Artaxerxes' men, plundering what they could carry and burning what they couldn't, toting away or destroying all the goods and provisions that Cyrus's army had brought with them. At this time, word reached the Greeks that Cyrus the Younger had been killed and their camp pillaged. Despite routing the enemy not once but twice, and only reportedly suffering a single man wounded, the Hoplites now found themselves alone in a vast hostile empire, without an employer and without any food. But though isolated, they were not exposed. Each man could find shelter in the shield of his brothers and take comfort in the collective arms that provided them security. The Persian loyalists may have held the field victorious, they were now faced with an unlikely enemy, a rogue army fighting not for a king or some coin, but for their very lives. The Greeks, in an effort to remedy their situation, attempted to offer a nobleman by the name of Arius, Cyrus's second-in-command, the throne of Persia. Arius, however, declined the offer on the grounds that he was not of royal lineage, though it is doubtful to me that he would even accept the offer even if he was, seeing the almost impossible situation that they all found themselves in. The Greeks then approached Tissaphernes, now in sole command of the Persian army at Canoxa following Artaxerxes' departure in the wake of the immediate battle, and asked him if he'd take them under his employ. Not wanting the Greeks within his empire, let alone within his ranks, he refused, instead demanding the Greeks surrender to him. The leadership of the 10,000, understandably confident in the fighting capabilities of their men, promptly declined. Thus, a stalemate ensued. Attempting to rid himself of the mercenary threat he was currently unwilling to engage, any Persian assault on the Greek lines would be met with immediate defeat, Tisphernes began to supply the Greeks with food while leading them north, away from Babylon, with the hope that leading them into the mountains of Armenia would force them to freeze, starve, or be picked off by the Carduchian hill tribes. This was all done under the guise that he was leading the 10,000 home, hoping to placate them lest he faced a raft of 10,000 heavy infantry bearing down upon his lines. Lacking knowledge of the greater terrain and geography, and their morale low from their failed campaign, the Greeks were forced to go along with it. Arius, in the meantime, was released from the situation with his remaining levied soldiers. With their local allies now gone, the Greek situation would only get worse. After stringing the 10,000 along for some time, Tissaphernes, unable to dispatch the Greeks through combat and unwilling to continue their expensive escort, decided it was best to turn to treachery. A more direct type of treachery than leading an army to potential doom, what follows is more akin to assassination. After a day of hard travel, he decided to host a feast within his camp and cordially invited the Greek leadership. Sensing danger, many of the Greek commanders refused to attend such an obvious trap while others argued it was a chance for them to get on the general's good side and win their freedom. After some debate, Clearchus and the other prominent leaders of the 10,000 chose to attend, a decision they would all soon regret. Upon their arrival, the Greek leadership was seized, lined up, and promptly decapitated. Peace of any sort was no longer an option. Now bereft of leadership, 
the 10,000, in true classical Greek fashion, began to elect new officers. Chosen among them was Xenophon, the author of our source material, who, placed in charge of the rear guard, would prove to be an exemplary leader of men as he helped lead the expedition north towards freedom. The goal of the 10,000 was to reach the Black Sea. Should they reach the Greek colonies located along the shore of the Black Sea coast, it was believed that they could then all return home by sea. But the journey was to be long and perilous, and the focus of each day was to merely survive. Now under new management, the 10,000 struck out independently, organized into a hollow square in order to protect their flanks from the very real threat of encirclement. With the hoplites forming the outer walls and their baggage train in the center, the Greeks marched on, with Tissaphernes in hot pursuit the entire way. Not allowing the Greeks to advance unmolested, the Persian general sent forth sizable forces of cavalry and light infantry to harass and disrupt the Greek formation with arrows and javelins, attempting to slow their march and wear them down over time. In this way, Tissaphernes hoped to soften the Greeks up before delivering his final crushing blow. Though the heavily armored Greeks took few casualties on account of their great shields and tough armor, any effort by the Hoplites to chase down the quick-footed raiders was unsuccessful. Any attempt to sally out of the box would open the Hoplites up to cavalry and skirmisher attacks from the side and rear, leading only to further losses. For far longer than they would have liked, it seemed that all the Greeks could do was weather the unrelenting storm of missiles. Xenophon, however, had a solution. Drawing from the pack animals of the baggage train and the scant number of horses brought from home by a few of the wealthier individuals, notably himself and Clearchus, Xenophon mounted 50 of his hoplites on horseback in order to develop an ad hoc cavalry force. So too were men from the island of Rhodes pulled from the ranks and taken to serve as improvised Rhodian slingers, some of the finest light infantry of the classical age, whose range was greater than that of a bow and whose stone bullet was just as devastating. It was neither pretty nor perfect, but it was all they had, and it was worth a shot. Day after day, the Persian attacks would persist, and the Persians, having tasted nothing but easy success, were drawn into a relaxed state. The Greek counterattacks had ceased, and they still had never so much as returned fire in their own defense. Cocky and carefree, the Persians approached closer and closer to the Greek lines, until the day they had reached a point of no return. Having observed the 10,000 cross a gorge along their route of advance, the Persians gave chase, sending forth 1,000 horsemen and 4,000 archers. The Persians rushed towards the Greeks as they always had, except for on this day, they were so bold as to approach and fire upon the hoplites from mere yards away. With the enemy just outside of spearing range, Xenophon sprung his trap. Given the signal, he and the rest of the Greek riders within the formation mounted their steeds and took off, erupting from within the wall of hoplites, their paltry numbers more than compensated by sheer audacity. Catching the Persians by surprise, the raiders were thrown into confusion as Xenophon's riders plunged into their midst, cutting down their foes left and right, slaying many and scattering the rest. The survivors retreating under a hail of bullets. Trapped in the gorge, countless Persians were killed, among them no less than 18 of their horsemen who were seized by the Greeks and executed on the spot. Vengeance for Clearchus and their leadership. Fallen in the field, the bodies of the Persians were horribly disfigured to demoralize any enemy from ever daring to pursue the Greeks again. It was by no means a decisive victory, but blooding the nose of the enemy has always been a cause for celebration and Greek morale soared. Through their limited means, the Greeks had developed an answer to counter the Persian raids. Having won themselves a bit of breathing room, the 10,000 recommenced their movement north, reaching the Tigris River by the end of the day. Ahead of them lay decrepit ruins, the remains of a civilization so ancient that they were still shrouded in legend, even to the local population 2,400 years ago. Xenophon writes, quote, 
Here was a large deserted city. Its name was Larissa, and it was inhabited in ancient times by the Medes. Its wall was 25 feet in breadth and 100 in height, and the whole circuit of the wall was two parasangs, one parasang equaling approximately 6 kilometers. It was built of clay bricks and rested upon a stone foundation 20 feet high. This city was besieged by the king of the Persians at a time when the Persians were seeking to wrest from the Medes their empire, but he could in no way capture it. A cloud, however, overspread the sun and hid it from sight until the inhabitants abandoned their city, and thus it was taken. Unquote. The ruins Xenophon speaks of are those of Kala, also known as Nimrud, an ancient Assyrian city in the vicinity of modern-day Mosul, Iraq. The Assyrians, an ancient people often believed to be the first civilization to develop a professional standing army, were experts at siegecraft, and built great fortresses throughout their empire in northern Iraq. Having existed since biblical times, Nimrod is actually mentioned in the book of Genesis. The city collapsed with its empire and was conquered by the Persians in the field of the Assyrian twilight, so it had quite the history. Venturing on, the 10,000 stumbled across more ruins, echoes of ages past. Xenophon writes, quote, Nearby this city was a pyramid of stone, a plethora in breadth and two plethora in height, and upon this city were many barbarians, referring to the Persians, who had fled away from the neighboring villages. Unquote. In this line, he's describing a Mesopotamian ziggurat, what is essentially a terraced pyramid with successively receding levels, a design so old that it is said to have been the precursor to the architecture behind the ancient Egyptian pyramids, who themselves date back to, at the earliest, around 2600 BC. So you really have to take a step back and think about the scale of time involved in all of this. Xenophon, who is chronicling all this 2400 years ago, is mentioning the continued use of a structure that could very well have been built over 2,000 years before he even got there. Compare that nowadays to the endless construction of plywood homes, and I'm putting that in air quotes, homes, in Florida, and you really get the idea that we just don't make anything to last anymore. But I digress. Returning to Xenophon's archaeological tour, he takes us to one last notable stop, the ruins of the once mighty city of Nineveh. Xenophon writes, Quote, from Nimrud, they marched one stae, six parasangs, to a great stronghold, deserted and lying in ruins. The name of this city was Mespila, Nineveh, and it was once inhabited by the Medes. The foundation of its wall was made of polished stone full of shells and was 50 feet in breadth and 50 in height. Upon this foundation was built a wall of brick, 50 feet in breadth and another 100 in height, and the circuit of the wall was six parasangs. Here, as the story goes, Media, the king's wife, took refuge at the time when the Medes were deprived of their empire by the Persians. To this city also the king of the Persians laid siege, but he was unable to capture it either by length of siege or by storm. Zeus, however, terrified the inhabitants with thunder, and thus the city was taken. Nineveh, once the great capital of the Assyrian Empire, was the hub of the Assyrian war machine and for decades even held the title of the largest city in the world, additionally referred to by both the Bible and the Greeks alike as a hive of sin and anarchy. When it fell to a combined coalition of regional peoples at the turn of the century around 600 BC, the Assyrian Empire fell with it. It was then held by the Median Empire, who eventually collapsed against the conquests of the ascendant Persian Empire, their geopolitical successor. It was Cyrus the Great, founder of the Persian Empire, who had crushed the Medes folding them into his realm, the very same realm the 10,000 were now fighting to escape from. Passing the scattered ruins, the Greeks followed the North Star and wherever the paths and roads may lead, pushing towards the northern mountains. 
Constantly threatened by the Persians at their rear, the desecrated bodies from earlier had seemingly no effect, and under constant assault from the intense summer sun, they now faced the prospect of winter in the mountains with no adequate protection from the elements. But the men trudged on, passing through the villages at thought of the land and foraging what food they could. Their troubles worsened considerably, however, when Tissaphernes received waves of reinforcements from across the empire. His army now bolstered, Tissaphernes felt emboldened, and he advanced his massive men and horses against the Greeks. However, though he was brave enough to march, he wasn't brave enough to charge. Utilizing their numbers to swamp the Greeks, the Persian general arrayed his force in a U-shape, positioning elements of his army behind the 10,000 and on their flanks. Once in position, he gave the order to fire. Missiles rained down upon the Greeks from three sides, wounding men as the arrows and javelins found their targets in the gaps between their armor. But like the last Persian raid, the Greeks had an answer. Dispersed throughout their formation at intervals, the 10,000 employed what few Cretan archers and Rhodian slingers they had. Loosing their missiles, every soldier found his mark, having no problem striking the masses of Persians who lay well within range. Suffering through the Greek volleys and witnessing his men falling on all sides, Tissaphernes panicked and, fearing for his own life, fled out of range. His undisciplined army followed suit, leaving the field of battle to the 10,000, who buried what few dead they had and resumed their march, leaving behind a plain littered with Persian corpses in their wake. Smarting from their wounds, the Persians contented themselves to shadowing the Greeks for some time, but as the 10,000 neared the Carduchian mountains of Armenia, now located in southeastern Turkey, Tissaphernes knew he had to act. Seeing the mountains on the horizon invigorated the Greeks, who knew they were the keys to leaving Tissaphernes behind. Additionally, standing between them and the Carduchians was the rolling terrain of the mountain's foothills. Though such rough ground was the traditional enemy of any hoplite army, whose elevation and rugged terrain broke up the phalanx formation they so often used, the series of rough hills were now a welcome sight, and the Greeks knew that they would all but destroy the enemy's cavalry advantage. Their morale high, the Greeks rushed to the foothills, ready to conquer hill after hill, intent on hastily mounting each crest before diving down the hillside, before again re-emerging on the next hilltop, eager to escape the plains. However, their escape into the highlands would not go unchallenged. Not yet. After having crested the first of the innumerable large hills in the area, the Greek formation began their descent down the far side. Observing the movement of the Greek box formation through his scouts and the surrounding high ground, Tissaphernes knew the time was now. With his army awaiting the signal in an ambush position just behind the opposite hill, the 10,000 had walked right into his trap. Xenophon writes, At this moment the barbarians came down upon the Greeks, and down from the hilltop discharged their missiles and sling stones and arrows, fighting under the lash. They not only inflicted many wounds, but they got the better of the Greek light troops and shut them up within the lines of the hoplites, so that these troops being mingled with the non-combatants, were entirely useless throughout that day, slingers and bowmen alike. And when the Greeks, hard-pressed as they were, undertook to pursue the attacking force, they reached the hilltop but slowly, being heavy troops, while the enemy sprang quickly out of reach. And every time they returned from a pursuit to join the main army, they suffered again in the same way. On the second hill, the same experiences were repeated, and hence, after ascending the third hill, they decided not to stir the troops from its crest until they had led up a force of peltists from the right flank of the square to a position on a mountain. As soon as this force had got above the hostile troops that were hanging upon the Greek rear, the latter desisted from attacking the Greek army in its descent, for fear that they might be cut off and found themselves enclosed on all sides by their foes. In this way, the Greeks continued their march for the remainder of the day, 
the one division by the road leading over the hills, while the other followed a parallel course along the mountain slope, and so arrived at the villages. There they appointed eight surgeons, for the wounded were many. Unquote. Having defeated the enemy ambush at a cost, the leadership of the 10,000 thought it best to take up defensive positions, and so the Greeks occupied the nearby villages over the course of the following three days. Not only did this provide a bit of time to tend to the wounded, but it allowed the Greeks to gorge themselves and restock on provisions, for the villages were overflowing with wine, flour, and barley, all supplies meant to supply Tissaphernes' army, should it have succeeded. On the fourth day, the Greeks began to advance again, only to be overtaken by Tissaphernes, forcing the 10,000 to take refuge in the first village they found, not willing to risk open battle on account of the wounded. Unperturbed by the Greek defenses, the Persians advanced to within missile range, and the two sides began to trade long-range volleys all day. Finding it easier to defend a static defensive position than a marching column, the Greeks easily had the better of the engagement. As night fell, the Persians were forced back yet again, and fearing a Greek night attack, made preparations to camp over 10 kilometers away. Hearing that the enemy was fearful of their advance, the 10,000 came up with a clever ruse. As the enemy departed, the Greeks shouted to gather their bags and resume the march, well within earshot of the enemy. Reports of the Greeks uprooting their position spread to Persian commanders, who in turn held their troops in defensive positions until well after dark, at which time they finally withdrew their exhausted men. The 10,000, however, were undertaking their own course of action. Having observed the Persian retreat after dark, the Greeks broke camp and took to the roads themselves, bypassing the enemy by an additional 10 kilometers or so. Now distanced from the enemy and continuing their advance, the Greeks maintained a healthy distance between themselves and the Persians, denying the enemy a chance to attack for three whole days after the village skirmish. But the 10,000's fortune would soon change. The following is a passage from Xenophon's Anabasis, Book 3, Chapter 4. Written, on the fourth day, however, after pushing forward by night, the barbarians occupied a high position on the right of the road by which the Greeks were to pass a spur of the mountain, namely, along the base of which ran the route leading down into the plain. As soon as Sheriosophus, the leader of the Greek vanguard, observed that the spur was already occupied, he summoned Xenophon from the rear, directing him to come to the front and bring the Peltists with him. Xenophon, however, would not bring the Peltists, for he could see Tissaphernes and his whole army coming into view, but he rode forward himself and asked, Why are you summoning me? Sheriophus replied, It is perfectly evident. The hill overhanging our downward road has been occupied, and there is no getting by unless we dislodge these people. Why did you not bring the Peltists? Xenophon answered that he had not thought it best to leave the rear unprotected when hostile troops were coming into sight. Well, at any rate, said Cheriosophus, it is high time to be thinking how we are to drive these fellows from the height. Then Xenophon observed that the summit of the mountain was close above their own army, and that from this summit there was a weight of approach to the hill where the enemy were. And he said, Our best plan, Sheriosophus, is to drive with all speed for the mountaintop, for if we once get possession of that, those men above our road will not be able to hold their position. If you choose then, stay in command of the army, and I will go, or, if you prefer, you make for the mountaintop, and I will stay here. Well, said Sheriosophus, I leave it to you to choose whichever part you wish. Then Xenophon, with the remark that he was the younger, elected to go, but he urged Sheriosophus to send with him some troops from the front, for it would have been too long a journey to bring up men from the rear. Sheriosophus accordingly sent with him the Peltists at the front, replacing them with those that were inside the square. 
He also ordered the 300 picked men under his own command at the front of the square to join Xenophon's force. Then they set out with all possible speed. But no sooner had the enemy upon the hill observed their dash for the summit of the mountain than they also set off to race with the Greeks for the summit. Then there was a deal of shouting from the Greek army as they urged on their friends, and just as much shouting from Tissaphernes' troops to urge on their men. And Xenophon, riding along the lines atop his horse, cheered his troops forward. My good men, he said, believe that you are now racing for Greece, racing this very honor back to your wives and children. A little toil for this one moment, and no more fighting for the rest of the journey. So it was written. Burdened with their fate, the men found vigor in Xenophon's words and made for the hilltop with all haste, claiming the height mere seconds before the Persians. Seizing the initiative, Xenophon's Greeks barreled down upon their eastern foe, breaking the back of their advance and destroying their will to fight. The Persian army turned and fled, each man abandoning the other as their retreat quickly turned into an absolute rout. From his position atop the summit, Xenophon watched his foe disintegrate before him, and sent word to the rest of his army that their advance was now clear. Moving once more into the plains that lay between the various peaks, the 10,000 marched from village to village, restocking their provisions and forging what they could. Though they suffered occasional losses from Persian cavalry raids, Tissaphernes had mostly decided to back off from the Greeks, preferring instead to watch and observe from afar, which was a good thing too. The path of the 10,000 took them north, where they would enter the Carduchian mountains of modern southeastern Turkey, a wild frontier of steep peaks and hostile inhabitants, a land where no Persian dared to go. Leaving Tissaphernes and his army behind them, the Greeks marched into the Carduchians. There, they would meet a new host, a new enemy, an entirely different beast compared to their last. There, they would meet the hill tribes. And the hill tribes of the Carduchian mountains were by no means docile. They were a fierce people who lived in rural villages located at the bottom of the endless mountain valleys that crisscrossed throughout the area. On a normal day, they would do little more than tend to their crops and livestock, but at the given signal would immediately flee to the mountains and fight from the heights should any army be bold enough to enter their realm. They were expert marksmen, wielding tremendous bows that were so large they had to be placed on the ground in order to fire arrows no less than three feet long. Always avoiding open battle, they relied on guerrilla tactics. Warlike to the bone, the Carduchians had become such a thorn in the side of the Persian Empire that a past king himself had once dispatched a great army to subdue them, confident of an easy victory. But of the 120,000 Persian souls who ventured in, not one ever returned. Thus, quite understandably, the 10,000 entered the mountains with the intent of establishing and maintaining friendly relations with the hill tribes. Both have a long historic hatred of the Persians, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Wrong. Extremely isolationist, the Carduchians began hostilities almost immediately. All along the Greek route of advance, hill tribe warriors would constantly assault the Greek slow-moving formation, particularly the exposed rear guard under Xenophon. A favorite Carduchian method of attack was for the warriors to take positions on top of cliffs surrounding the invaders, and then roll down large rocks and boulders onto the unsuspecting, freezing Greeks below. Advancing up the narrow, winding mountain trails, the hoplites would suddenly find themselves under a hail of stones, raising their shields to protect themselves from above. With their foes now exposed on the side, however, Carduchian archers would fire their lethal arrows from a different angle and elevation, with many arrows finding their target, not only puncturing the armor, but piercing entirely through each unfortunate man himself. Under a shower of missiles, the hoplites would struggle to drag their wounded brothers into protection of the shielded formation, only to hear the spine-chilling rumble of a man-made landslide 
bear down from above them, crashing through the ranks and crushing or throwing off the mountain any poor soul who was caught in its path. The 10,000, armed mostly with mere spear and shield, had little to reply with. In this way, the Greeks suffered horrible casualties, their losses mounting so high that Xenophon was forced to admit that they were lucky the Carduchians were so few, lest their losses rise. Eventually, after what must have seemed to be an eternity, the Greeks came across a large Carduchian force in a narrow mountain pass, fortifying their position and turning it into a stronghold, standing defiant before the Hellenic invaders. Finally, the Greeks must have thought, a battle against a standing enemy. Xenophon split the 10,000 in two, keeping 8,000 men in front of the enemy to fix them in place while a separate detachment of 2,000, guided by a Carduchian prisoner, was taken around through the winding mountain trails and into the pass from the rear. As the early sun rose, the morning mist was pierced by the sound of trumpets, the signal that the detachment had been successful and that it was time to attack. The heavily armored hoplites surged forward, taking the fortress garrison entirely by surprise. Confused and surrounded, the tribal warriors offered little in the way of true resistance. Clamoring over the walls and breaking through the gates, the 10,000 surged into the fortress and closed with their elusive foe, finally able to fight the hill tribes on their own terms. There was nowhere to run. The same mountains that had just days before given the Carduchians every advantage had now become their tomb. Every defender was put to the sword, and the Greeks seized the fortress. With their great victory behind them, the Greeks proceeded to push further north, and though they were still harried by countless mountain ambushes, their morale began to pick up. Local villagers had been telling them for some time that across an upcoming river, always just over the next horizon, lay civilization, the lands of Armenia. Though at the time Armenia was a Persian satrapy, and thus not necessarily friendly territory, at this point in the campaign, in the minds of the bloodied and freezing Greek soldiers, absolutely anything beat remaining in the living hell that were the Carduchian Mountains. And so, marching on, at last, after a few more days' journey, the Greeks had reached the Cantrites River, and with it, the Armenian hinterland. But an army lumbering through the mountains moves slowly, and it attracts attention, and though the hoplites had emerged from the mountains, they had not done so in secret. Much to their dismay, immediately ahead of them guarding the opposite bank of the river lay the Persian army of Orontas, satrap of Greater Armenia, blocking the immediate crossing and standing in the way of the road north. Now, under normal circumstances, fording a river against an opposing army is always a daunting task, to say the least. The defender essentially has every advantage, and history is full of armies who attacked across a river only to suffer a humiliating defeat. But this was no mere army! This was an army of Greeks! An army of the legendary 10,000, the victors of Canoxa, the bane of Tissaphernes, and the unvanquished of the Carduchians. With each step they took, they marched closer to home, and no thing, no one, would stop them now. That, at least, is how I imagine how they viewed themselves in my heavily romanticized mind, which, if true, was a great mindset to have, because meanwhile, behind them, as the Greeks assessed the situation to their front, a large force of hill tribes was fast approaching from the rear. The Greeks were facing a double envelopment and near certain eradication. If they were to survive, they would have to act now. The Persians were guarding the fording site directly in front of the Greeks, and there were no bridges in the area. Thus, the 10,000 had to find another place to cross. As luck would have it, two hoplites out collecting firewood half a mile downstream came upon local villagers upon the other bank, a place strewn with large rocks. Luckily for the Greeks, the soldiers in question who came upon these local villagers were rather astute individuals, and noticed that the villagers were behaving to them as if the water was shallow, and the soldiers attempted to wade across. 
To their delight, they had discovered a hidden fording site, a spot in the river where the water only reached just above the knee. Sprinting back to camp, they immediately relayed their finding to Xenophon, who, alongside the other Greek commanders, developed a plan. Once again, they split their army in two. The majority of the 10,000, complete with the baggage train and the surviving camp followers, moved in full kit, ready for battle, down to the new fording site. The rear guard under Xenophon, meanwhile, remained at the original location. The Persians, seeing this force move along the river, began to follow, shadowing the Greeks along the bank. Once the hoplites had reached the new fording site, the entire Greek force sang along their battle hymn, singing and shouting as loud as they possibly could, making sure the Persians could hear. Now the Persians, though unable to actually see the Greek numbers on account of the large rocks restricting their approach, nevertheless heard the battle hymn and the chanting, and fearing an attack, rushed messengers back to Arantas to warn of the impending assault. As the messengers sprinted back to camp, Xenophon, who had heard his brothers-in-arms downstream, gave the signal for his column to begin their advance. Arantas, who had remained across the river from Xenophon's contingent, received the messengers upon their arrival and, gazing out over the water upon a mobile wall of bronze, knew his position was untenable. Fearing he was about to be caught in a nasty pincer movement, he didn't even offer a fight, choosing instead to hastily withdraw his men. For the 10,000, the timing couldn't have been better. As Arantas and his Persians melted away, the hill tribes began their assault, descending from the slopes and falling upon the Greeks' rear. Xenophon, readying his men, turned his army 180 degrees and, now facing the Carduchians, led them in a countercharge uphill, closing the gap between the two armies and rendering the hill tribes' ranged capabilities absolutely useless. The Greek hoplites, armored head to toe and meeting their enemy at full tilt, ready themselves to slam into the mountain tribesmen like a warhead, only to watch the Carduchians drop their weapons and retreat before them, utterly disintegrating before the hoplite advance. Thrown into a full and unrestrained rout, the hill tribes vanished into the mountains. Having effectively neutralized the threat that the hill tribes had posed, and now covered by frontier light infantry on the far bank, the larger contingent of the Greeks, following their hymn, had in fact crossed during all this, Xenophon and his force crossed the river. Thus, the 10,000 had crossed the Kentrites River and escaped the Carduchian Mountains. Doing as they had done since they first began their march, they continued their trip north, into the land of Armenia. With Arontas defeated, the 10,000 entered the satrapy of Western Armenia, a sub-satrapy of Greater Armenia. The satrap of Western Armenia, a general by the name of Tiribazis, quite understandably was not at all thrilled to have a large body of armed Greeks in his land, but promised no aggression so long as the 10,000 did not plunder or loot his towns and villages, though they were allowed to take whatever provisions they wished. The Greeks agreed, happy to avoid any needless bloodshed. Shortly after the agreement was made, however, Hoplites on foraging parties began to spot an increasing number of campfires in the countryside around wherever the 10,000 made camp. It was thus made clear that, like Tissaphernes before, Hiribazus and his army wouldn't simply let the Greeks be. It would instead shadow their every movement waiting to strike. When they had marched through the Carduchians, the Greeks, inadequately prepared for the cold, were exposed to the elements, forced to muscle through the freezing mountain highlands. Now in the Armenian plains, the 10,000 made good progress in their advance north, before they again met with frigid conditions, getting caught up in a bitter winter snowstorm. Suffering every minute of each chilling day, and fitfully sleeping throughout each frosty night, the Greeks were gradually weakened the deeper they ventured into Armenia. Stalked by Tiribazis, it was only a matter of time before the Persians struck their fatal blow. 
The Greeks, wary of this situation, sent out a scouting party to investigate the surrounding campfires. The scouts, though they returned without having seen any campfires at all, did, however, return with a prisoner in tow, armed with a quiver, a bow, and a great battle axe. Questioning the prisoner, it was discovered that not only did Tiribazus intend on attacking the Greeks, but he planned to do so on the road ahead in a narrow mountain pass from which the Greeks could not escape. This was all the Greeks needed to hear. Using the prisoner as a guide, the 10,000 set off immediately for the main Persian encampment. Xenophon writes, quote, As soon as they had begun to cross the mountains, the Peltists, pushing on ahead and descrying the enemy's camp, did not wait for the hoplites, but raised a shout and charged upon the camp. When the barbarians heard the uproar, they did not wait to offer resistance, but took the flight. Nevertheless, some of them were killed. About 20 horses were captured, and likewise, Terabasis' tent, with silver-footed couches in it, and drinking cups, and people who said they were his bakers and his cupbearers. As soon as the generals of the hoplites learned of these results, they deemed it best to go back as speedily as possible to their own camp, lest some attack might be made upon those that they left behind. So they immediately sounded the recall with the trumpet and set out on the return journey, arriving at their camp on the same day." Unquote. The Greeks had, in one fell swoop, sacked Tiribazus' camp, made off with large amounts of supplies, luxurious furniture, and even his personal chefs, all without suffering a single scratch. Despite this victory, it was more of a psychological win than anything else. The Greeks hastily moved on, knowing that though what they had done was impressive, it was nothing more than a slap in Tiribazus' face, nowhere near the decisive victory the 10,000 would need to get the Persians off their back. Rushing north and through the mountain pass Tiribazus originally aimed to ambush them at, they marched for a long time through harsh desert before crossing the Euphrates River in eastern Anatolia. Again, modern Turkey, though at the time it was Armenia. And putting a good amount of distance between themselves and their Persian pursuers. But where Tiribazus and his army were failing, a new enemy took their place. The unforgiving Pontic Mountains. With their supplies dwindling, the 10,000 stubbornly trudged onwards, marching day after day through thick banks of snow, struggling to keep warm with what few fires they could construct from the sparse kindling available. Having exhausted much of their food in their advance thus far, many of the men began to grow weak with hunger. Soon, the formerly organized marching column began to look like a sorry train of the walking dead, as more and more Greeks, famished and frostbitten, dropped out of formation and fell by the wayside. Commanding the rear guard, it was Xenophon who found himself tasked with rounding up the stragglers, giving them what meager rations he could, and pushing them back into the ranks. Reaching a small mountain village on a particularly frigid night, the Greeks did what they could to seek shelter in the local huts, but many more found themselves left outdoors. Exposed to the elements, more than a few of the soldiers perished in their sleep. It should be noted here that Xenophon and his rear guard, a motley assortment of relatively healthy men alongside the walking wounded and a large amount of invalids, which is to say, individuals who require others to move them, were continually harried by a small band of Persians constantly nipping on the heels of the 10,000, likely a detachment sent by Tiribazus to finish off anyone the weather couldn't, stripping for supplies and equipment those who had fallen dead on the road behind the Greek march and ravenously consuming any pack animal too weak to continue. Collecting who he could, Xenophon swung his formation around 180 degrees, pointed them at the Persians, and with whoever could stand, charged the enemy formation head-on, with the invalids clanging together their shields and shouting as loud as they could. This sudden act thoroughly spooked the Persians, who, scared and wanting to return home themselves, gave up the pursuit and returned to their homes across the empire. 
Having overreached, and with his army calling it a quits, quite literally, Tirabazis, so to speak, would no longer be an issue. Anyways, back to the cold. The Greek leadership, seeing that their men were suffering from frostbite, starvation, snow blindness, and just general exhaustion, knew that for the time being they could go no further. Drawing lots, each of the various detachments of the 10,000 were given a particular village known to be in the area with orders to establish their troops in winter quarters. The men of Xenophon's rear guard, it is written, upon their arrival to their designated village, moved into a series of underground homes carved into the mountains, structures that, though they were dug thousands of years ago, are still found in eastern Turkey to this day. What's more, despite the horrible environmental conditions of the country the Greeks found themselves in, within their winter homes the men found ample stores of provisions, of pork, veal, and wine, among many others, all with friendly locals willing to share. Having suffered through so much deprivation, the Greeks did all they could to indulge themselves in feast after feast, replenishing both their strength and their morale. With no reason to leave on account of the abundance of food and shelter, the 10,000 remained in their scattered winter quarters for some time. After having resolved their supply situation on account of residing in the villages for a while, the 10,000 waited for the weather to improve, and when it finally did, the 10,000 once more began their arduous march north. Now deep in the Pontic Mountains, they found their way through a mountain pass blocked by a combined army of, and I may botch these names, Caldoi, Tauchians, and Phasians, three proudly independent tribes who collectively lived in the mountains between the Black Sea and Armenia. Putting together a quick council of war, the 10,000 embarked on a daring night attack, whereupon they sent a contingent of soldiers to seize a nearby mountain height overlooking the coalition army, who, knowing the Greeks could attack at any minute, stayed awake all night long in preparation for battle. At dawn the following morning, the main Greek force under the Spartan commander Sheriosophus advanced into the pass while the contingent on the mountain simultaneously moved down from the heights, pressuring the defending tribes from two sides. Seeing what was occurring, the tribal leadership dispatched a portion of their army to counterattack the Greeks on the mountain, but exhausted from staying up all night and forced to attack uphill, the tribal force was soundly defeated. Knowing they had been outmaneuvered, the main body of the tribal coalition retreated into the mountains, closely followed by the Greek light infantry and the Hoplites under Sheriosophus, who slew a few of the men in the enemy's rear. Reaching the top of the pass, they built a small memorial to commemorate their victory before moving down into the plains below, rich with affluent villages through which they could rest and resupply. Marching on, the 10,000 entered the lands of the Tauchians, one of the tribes who had opposed them at the pass, and one of those who I'm sure I've botched the name of, whose land stretched throughout many of the mountains along the Black Sea through parts of modern-day northeastern Turkey, Georgia, and Armenia. Residents of a hostile neighborhood, the Teochians resided in large, walled mountain strongholds, within which resided their men, women, and children, complete with copious amounts of cattle and a large store of food, fortresses in the mountains. Though the Greeks bypassed most of the strongholds, they began to run low on supplies and, coming upon a lightly fortified stronghold, relative to the ones they had seen previously, knew that they had to take it, lest they all starve. Perched atop a mountain road with a cliff on either side, the Greeks were forced to assault the position head-on, pushing forward with two battalions of hoplites, a few hundred men apiece, each making little to no headway against the stout Teochian defenders, who hurled rocks down and boulders onto the Greek formations from above. Arriving on the scene, Xenophon met with Sheriosophus, who had begun the attack, as to what needed to be done. Xenophon writes, quote, 
The moment Xenophon came up with the rear guard, consisting of both Peltists and Hoplites, Sheriosophus said to him, You have come in the nick of time, for the place must be captured, for the army has no provisions unless we capture this place. Then they took counsel together, and when Xenophon asked what it was that prevented their effecting an entrance, Sheriosophus replied, There is this one way of approach which you see, but when one tries to go along by this way, they roll down stones from this overhanging rock, and whoever gets caught is served in this fashion. And with the words, he pointed out men with their legs and ribs crushed. But suppose they used up their stones, said Xenophon. There is nothing then, is there, to hinder one's passing? For surely there is nothing we can see on the other side except a few men yonder, and only two or three of them are armed. Sheriosphus elaborates, stating, The very moment we begin to push out towards the trees, the stones fly in quantities. Precisely the thing we want, said Xenophon, for they will use up their stones the sooner. But let us make our way to a spot from which we shall have only a short distance to run across, in case we can do that, and an easy retreat in case we choose to come back. Unquote. Their plan, simply put, was essentially to start a deadly game of whack-a-mole, baiting in the stones and then advancing a short distance between volleys. To do this, the two commanders called upon a few more officers, each with their own contingent of soldiers, to aid in the effort. And though lives were on the line, the reinvigorated assault quickly turned into a game. Xenophon writes, quote, Thereupon Sheriosophus and Xenophon set forth, and with them Callimachus of Parhasia, a captain, for he was the officer of the day in command of the captains of the rear guard, and the other captains remained in a place of safety. Following this lead, about 70 men got out under shelter of the trees, not all together, but one by one, each protecting himself as best he could. But Agassius of Stymphalus and Aristonymus of Mithridium, who were likewise captains of the rear guard, and others also, took places outside the cover of the trees, for not more than the one company, which is to say, Callimachus's contingent, could stand among them with safety. At that moment, Callimachus hit upon a scheme. He would run up forward two or three steps from the particular tree he was under and, when the stones began to fly, would draw back without any trouble. And at every one of these dashes, more than ten cartloads of stone would be used up. And when Agassias saw what Callimachus was doing, with the whole army for spectators, he became fearful that the other would be the first to make the run across to the stronghold. So without asking Aristomenus or Eurylochus of Lucy, though the former was close and both were his friends, or anyone else to join him, he dashed forward himself and proceeded to go past everybody. Callimachus, however, when he saw him going by, seized the rim of his shield, and at that moment, Aristonymus of Mithridium ran past both of them, and upon his heels, Eurylochus of Lucy, for all of these four were rivals in valor, and continually striving with one another. And in thus contending, they captured the stronghold, for once they rushed in, not a stone came down from above. Playing an extremely competitive game of leapfrog, four men took the fort, opened the gates, and let in the rest of the Greek army. However, upon entering the stronghold, the exhilaration of the 10,000 quickly gave way to horror. They watched, pale in the face, as the proud Teochians, like many mountain tribes, a fiercely independent people, fearing capture, began to throw themselves off the cliffs on either side of the stronghold. Men, women, children, warrior and civilian alike, all casting themselves off to their doom. One captain, by the name of Aeneas, caught sight of a man in a fine robe racing for the edge, and reaching him on his run, grabbed hold of his arm in an effort to save his life. The effort, however, was in vain, and dragging his attempted savior down with him, both he and Aeneas fell to their deaths. 
Only a few of the civilians within the fortress were captured, but though the costs in human lives had been unexpectedly high, the Greeks were able to seize a large number of cattle and other livestock, along with the whole of the fortress's food stores. The local inhabitants would no longer be needing it. Resuming their march, the 10,000 entered the homeland of the Chaldoi, the most valiant of the peoples they encountered. Hardened warriors, each Chaldoi fighter was armored with thick linen body armor, along with a helmet and greaves to protect the head and legs. Armed with spears and shields, the, the Chaldoi weren't ones to rely on ambushes, instead relishing open combat. Whenever they so much as thought that they were under observation, they began to joyously sing and dance, each man waving proud his collection of war trophies, the heads of vanquished foes. Remaining within their towns when the Greeks were near, they would emerge as the Greeks passed by, following the Greeks, always ready for a fight. The 10,000, not willing to accept any losses of their own trying to seize the towns, bypassed them all, subsisting purely off the cattle and provisions taken from the Teotians. Engaging the Chaldoi was simply not worth it. Moving on, they emerged from the Chaldoi lands with the onset of spring, and after traveling for many days, reached the large and prosperous city of Gimnius, thought to be the modern town of Pazanlur in the Turkish province of Erzurum, though the debate is ongoing. The ruler of the city, upon learning the Greeks were going to march north through the territory of a rival city-state, sent them a guide for their journey. This guide, whose name is lost to history, was so confident in his land navigation and orienteering skills that he promised to lead the 10,000 to a place from where they may see the sea within five days, promising the Greeks that they could kill him on the spot if he failed them. Bold words, but yes, you appreciate the confidence and the self-assuredness of the man. Though the guide made sure to spread the Greeks through the territory they marched, intent on destroying the countryside of the rival city as per his king's wishes, he did in fact keep his promise. On the fifth day, the 10,000 began their ascent up one of the countless mountains they had encountered on their march. This one, however, was a bit different than the rest. At this point, I feel it's best to let Xenophon do the talking. He writes, quote, On the fifth day, they did in fact reach the mountain. Its name was Theaches. Now, as soon as the vanguard got to the top of the mountain, a great shout went up. And when Xenophon and the rearguard heard it, they imagined that other enemies were attacking in front for enemies were following them from the district that was in flames, and the rear guard had killed some of them and captured others by setting an ambush, and had also taken about twenty wicker shields covered with raw, shaggy ox hides. But as the shout kept getting louder and nearer, as the successive ranks that came up all began to run at full speed towards the ranks ahead that were one after another joining in the shout, and as the shout kept growing far louder as the number of men grew steadily greater, it became quite clear to Xenophon that there was something of unusual importance. So he mounted a horse, took with him Lysias and the cavalry, and pushed ahead to lend aid. And in a moment they heard the soldiers shouting, The sea, the sea, and passing the word along. Then all the troops of the rear guard likewise broke into a run, and the pack animals began racing ahead, and the horses. And when all had reached the summit, then indeed they fell to embracing one another, and generals and captains as well, with tears in their eyes. Unquote. They had finally done it. After what had seemed like an eternity of grueling marches, having suffered the deception of Cyrus and the hollow victory against Artaxerxes, the betrayal and incessant dogging of Tissaphernes, the high ambushes of the Carduchians, having been shattered by Orontes and Tiribazis, assailed by countless tribes, and having battled the elements the entire way, through sun, snow, and blood, they had finally reached the coast of the Black Sea. 
Though their respective cities and homes were still far, far away, the sea, the very extension of the heart and soul of Greece, at last lay in front of them. They had at long last reached the far-flung edge of the Greek world, and for the first time in a long time, home was finally in sight. All around, the battle-hardened veterans of the expedition broke down, tears streaming down their face, weeping and embracing each other with joy. Thousands of grizzled mercenaries, the finest soldiers in the ancient world, collapsing to their knees, overcome with emotion. To commemorate this momentous occasion, the triumph of the Ten Thousand, each man grabbed a stone, and together they built a large cairn, marking the site where they had, on some level, at least in spirit, returned home. In the late 1990s, archaeologists studying the Anabasis identified the mountain Xenophon referred to as Theaches. Britain's scholar Timothy Mitford scaled the mountain of Devaboinu Tepe and, upon reaching the top, found no fleeting glimpse between mountains, no view snatched from a precipitous track, but a stupendous vantage point where perhaps 400 men could stand and gaze down on the distant sea. At the base of the mountain, he found the circular base of a huge stone cairn, 40 feet in width, the ruins of a landmark immortalizing the efforts of those who had come so far and a stark reminder of how long they still had to go. Though far closer to home than they had ever been, their journey was not quite over. Now venturing westward along the northern coast of Anatolia, the 10,000 marched through the territory of a people known as the Macronians. Attempting to cross a river, the 10,000 found their way once again barred by a hostile army, this time composed of the native Macronians. Trying and failing to throw stones at the Greeks from across the river, the Macronians then began to hurl insults in their barbarian tongue. Picking up on the foreign language, however, one of the Greeks approached Xenophon, telling him of how as a child he had been brought as a slave to Athens, and that the language of the Macronians seemed similar to what he remembered speaking in his youth. Allowed to speak with the Macronians, the soldier served as a translator as the two sides began shouting across the river. Once it was made clear to the Macronians that the 10,000 were not invaders, but rather merely weary travelers returning home from war, the two sides agreed to a treaty and pledged themselves as friends. The Macronians then proceeded across the river, gifting a barbarian spear to the Greeks, who in turn gifted the Macronian chief one of their Hellenic spears. Now united, the two sides then began to construct a bridge across the river, where upon its completion, the Macronians gifted the Greeks with a guide to aid them on their travels. Resuming their advance, the 10,000 entered the territory of the Colchis. A client state of the Persian Empire, the Colchians immediately took up arms against the perceived Greek invasion. After having marched for three days into the mountainous lands, the Greeks came upon a Colchian army drawn up for battle along the mountain range ahead of their advance. Seeing yet another foe stand between them and their homes, the 10,000 ready themselves to do yet again what has worked for them time after time. They prepared to charge. The slopes were gradual enough to be scaled on foot, but to do so in the classic hoplite phalanx would only serve to disadvantage them. An advance of rocky mountain slopes would surely destroy the cohesion a phalanx relies on, leaving the soldiers within the formation exposed to enemy attacks. Xenophon, knowing this, also recognized that making the formation too deep would leave them open to encirclement, whereas extending the line would render the formation too shallow and easy to break. Thus, it was decided that the Greeks would advance in columns, each of which would be composed of a 100-man company. It ensured a strong depth to resist enemy contact, made summoning the slopes far easier as each company was now highly maneuverable, and the Colchians would refuse to attack between the companies as they would then be attacked from both sides. Writing their assault, 
The 10,000 organized themselves into 80 companies of 100 hoplites each, backed up by a further force of 600 light infantry, placing 200 in the center, with 200 more on each flank. Before stepping off, Xenophon roused the men with a laconic speech, shouting, Comrades, these are the last enemies that stand in our path. Let us eat them up alive, if we can, without cooking. I'm not making this up, that's a real quote. You have to appreciate the humor. I mean, you have to imagine the mass cheering at the end to truly enjoy the delivery. Xenophon then took his position among his company, and the Greeks proceeded to advance up the slopes, placing the bravest men in each company within the front ranks. Gazing down upon the approaching Greeks, the Colchians realized, on account of the many columns spread out before them, that they were now at risk of being encircled, and so extended their own line, stretching out their right and left limits as far as possible. This, however, opened a hole in their center, a mistake the Greeks were quick to exploit. Sprinting into the gap, numerous Greek companies split the Colchian army in two, severing the Colchian left and right flanks from each other as the Greek flanks simultaneously engaged their respective opposition. Heavily pressured by the aggressiveness of the Greeks' advance, and a panic and cut off from each other, the two halves of the Colchian army were forced into a rout, melting into the mountains. After a few days more of marching, the 10,000 entered the city of Trebizond, Founded centuries before as one of many Greek colonies that dotted the Mediterranean and Black Sea coast, the city had become a thriving trading port and a rich Greek colony. At last, the 10,000 were finally among their own people. The citizens of Trebizond received them with open arms, bestowing upon them great gifts of all kinds. Welcoming them back from their great journey, the citizens happily heaped upon the 10,000 copious amounts of food and wine with a plenitude that the Greeks had not seen all along their arduous trek. Though their numbers had been greatly reduced, the majority of those who left Sardis with Cyrus the Younger some 11 months prior had survived the great expedition into and out of the depths of the Persian Empire. Using the numbers provided to us by Xenophon in the battle against the Colchians, out of the initial 10,000, you know, assuming that that 10,000 represented roughly 10,000 fighting men, about 8,600 still stood, not counting any camp followers. Showing no loss of strength, Many of the survivors of the march proceeded to compete in celebratory games, entertaining soldiers and civilians alike, ending the games with an annual sacrifice in classic Greek fashion. After the executions of Clearchus and the other commanders at the hands of Tissaphernes so long before, the 10,000 had all vowed to perform a great sacrifice in honor of the gods should they return safely to Greece. Though at times it seemed impossible, with the culmination of the games, they finally delivered upon their promise. Though this is not the true end of the story, I fear the length of this episode may be too long and am choosing what I believe to be a natural stopping point, the return of the 10,000 to Greek-held territory, to end my telling of the tale. The adventures of the 10,000, however, of course, are not slowly over. To summarize it all, now in the port city of Trebizond, those soldiers deemed sick or unable to carry on fighting, as well as those over the age of 40, are all sent home to the Greek mainland by ship. With the old and wounded now gone, much of the 10,000 remains, for the time, in Western Asia, continuing their journey home by foot. The Greeks promised to aid local factions in pursuit of safe passage and end up engaging in small-scale raids and skirmishes in support of their various hosts, occasionally serving as kingmakers. Remember, these men are mercenaries. Weary after all the fight and anxious to return home, large rifts began to open within the ranks, and some soldiers began to slander the various commanders, including Xenophon, who in response impressively defends himself with his masterful oration, additionally putting an end to the soldiers' unrest. 
The Spartans, who became the hegemonic power of Greece following the Peloponnesian War, a large-scale conflict within the eastern Mediterranean that ended in 404 BC, only three years before the beginning of our story, are now at war with Tissaphernes after that whole treacherous murder of Clearchus incident. Much of the 10,000 volunteered to accompany the Spartan expedition force, avenging their general by taking the fight to the enemy. The rather short campaign against Tissaphernes and his ally Pharnabasis II are the final books to be included in the Anabasis. With the end of the Spartan expedition, the 10,000 finally returned home. Xenophon would go on to purchase land in the vicinity of Olympia, the namesake of the Olympic Games, where he would build a temple to the goddess Artemis. Perhaps unsurprisingly, he would go on to become a prolific writer, penning of course the Anabasis, as well as the Hellenica, a story of the Hellenic world, essentially picking up where Thucydides' famous work The Peloponnesian Wars leaves off. Further works of his include those focused around historical fiction regarding oligarchy, Socratic philosophy, how to train horses, and on the advantages of hunting with dogs. Truly a man of many interests. Once settled, Xenophon and his wife would raise up two sons, Gryllus and Diodorus, both of whom would follow their father's military footsteps, riding with the Athenian cavalry at the Battle of Mantinea in 362 BC, a momentous event in which a united Sparta and Athens defeated the city of Thebes, who had become the masters of Greece following their victory over the Spartans at the Battle of Leuctra a decade prior. Though Gryllus was killed in the engagement, numerous accounts point to him delivering the mortal wound to Epaminondas, the general who crushed the Spartans at Leuctra, thus beginning the demise of Theban hegemony. Though not brought up in your average American high school history course, the impact of Xenophon on history cannot be overstated. His orders to the 10,000 to devastate the local Persian countryside was the first truly documented use of scorched earth tactics, as the 10,000 fed themselves while simultaneously denying the resources of the land to the pursuing enemy. Additionally, using the strategy of attack in depth, he was one of the first to pioneer its usage before it would spring to notoriety as a tactic used by the aforementioned Epaminondas in the Battle of Leuctra. It is undeniable, however, that his greatest impact was his penning of the Anabasis. The work was voraciously consumed by Alexander the Great. It would be this writing that proved to the young Macedonian king that a small but well-disciplined Greek force could stand against the entirety of the Persian Empire and triumph. The ripples of Alexander's epoch-defining Persian conquests can still be felt to this day, and some 2400 years later, the tale of the 10,000 continues to serve as perhaps the greatest triumph of mankind against the odds ever told. Thank you. We're listening to the Tale of the Ten Thousand, the first and flagship episode of what we hope will be a continuing series. Keep an eye out for our second episode as we cover the perilous plight of the Narvaez expedition, a failed effort by the Spanish Empire to explore the American South, and a stark reminder as to just how dangerous exploring a mysterious new world can truly be. See you next time on Expedition History.